Um, marriage is a lot of work, but it's really amazing. You know, it's it's both and. You know, we don't, you don't have a healthy marriage without really good communication and without being vulnerable with each other and without um, pushing each other to be the best versions of yourself and also to be closer to God. We've sharpened mm -hmm. each other. We have indeed. Iron sharpens iron. Right. And that may have been for men, but it works in a marriage too. It does. It really yeah. does. It's very, very clear to both of us is we've been married 45 years because we've cared about our marriage for 45 years. Uh, we, we've got to be, keep working at my own growth, my taking responsibility for me, you know, what's happening inside of me. Mm -hmm. um, I owe that to my partner in life. Marriage makes you have to stop and go, am I going to prefer myself today? What desires am I going to die to today? And there's times where we're like, no, I, I'm going to I'm going to do this. Totally. <laughs> the first step is the hardest step to be like, no, I want to do this. But then to like take that second step and be like, no, I really love this person. I would hate to hurt them. Mm -hmm. Marriage at the end of the day is ministry because this is something that is going to give glory to God, not to you. Marriage as a ministry is one, one to another. Uh, even in our relationship as friends, we both had to work on an area and a higher posture of humility. You think you know people till you get married. You're dating, haha, it's all cool. And then you get married and you're like, wow, That's we're happening. both really selfish. Like, oh yeah. my, wow. Oh, yeah. You know? And, and then you realize, wow, the world is very selfish. Christians can be selfish. selfish. And so it allowed us in those moments, one, to extend grace one to another because we realized we both needed it and extend that grace to other places. So really, um, it's, it is, marriage is an image of Christ and his church. We learned how to f ask for forgiveness from each other. I think we still do that well. Yeah. I think when we mess up, we go to each other and say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. That's a huge part of relationships. I don't want to apologize. <laughs> and, and yet I think maturity does come through being the person who says, I'm sorry, I yeah. stepped on your toes. I did something wrong. How can yeah. I make things better? Um, and I think that has been a humbling thing to recognize in the moments where I just feel frustrated. Yeah. It's usually moments that, that reveal my pride and arrogance rather yeah. than my correctness. Yeah. He is has always been willing to hear me. That is so important to give a relationship hope. If you feel like you're talking to someone and it just goes in one ear out the other. It starts eroding that trust in the relationship. So am I willing to change? Uh, or do I feel that marriage is for, for me to be just built up and supported? We have um, more ammo than anyone has ever had to be able to wound each other. Not using that is, is so crucial. When we're in those tough places and your mind can start to spiral on like just the negative and you start going rawr, rawr. this is what their intention yeah. was they wanted yeah the things that always normally will flip it around is when i just start like thanking god for you mm -hmm. and when i make that switch it's amazing how fast god just then expands my affection mm -hmm. right. uh, for yeah. you because mm -hmm. if i start down one one thought of well, he's doing that because of this. And if that's a negative thing, and if I don't take that thought captive right. and be like, okay, is that true? Is that actually who he is? But if I let that spiral, then it like just gets bad. Men have a tendency to want to fix the emotions that the wife is feeling. 
we learned that when I'm in the puddle and he wants to give me that hand out of the puddle, instead, if he can just come and sit in the puddle with me. That was a significant revelation for me. In fact, it's easier to do than trying to fix a problem that, you know, she, she presents. There's some aches that, that really can't be fixed, either by me doing something or as, as a pastor who speaks all the time, right? Yeah. Like a nice little speech isn't gonna help mm -hmm. you. And, um, and, yeah. and, and so I think having to deal with a little bit of helplessness is actually this really experience of, of a kind of suffering and helplessness that makes me rely on God. Yeah. Um, to say like, God, I cannot help and I can't help my wife right now. I just, I cannot bring her through this, only you can. Yeah, and I think when you were just there for me and you were just holding me and hugging me and just like comforting me, like that was the best thing that that I needed. I remember there was one day and I just remember I was like disrespectful and just so I was, I felt like a terrible wife all day and I didn't make it right and I wasn't apologizing. And I remember I came home and he had decorated the entire house for Christmas. All, and it was like really early. I love decorating for Christmas early and he doesn't. And he was like a very post Thanksgiving Christmas decoration person. And I remember walking in and talk about feeling humbled. When someone loves you when you don't deserve it, that's the cross, right? That's Jesus. And I think that's what marriage is supposed to be, is loving each other. Neither one of us deserve it. And like marriage at its best is when we love each other when the other doesn't deserve it. All right, good evening, everyone. I want to invite you to grab your Bible right now. Go to Genesis chapter 2. Should be pretty easy tonight. This is the second chapter of the Bible. I want to welcome those of you watching online. I invite you to lean in with us, too, uh, as we study the Word of God. And as you've heard about tonight, as we talk about the subject of marriage, we've talked about dating, we've talked about singleness, we've talked about the path toward marriage and all of the different um, ways that marriage comes together. And tonight we are going to talk uh, about the point of it all, where this is all heading toward, and that is marriage. It, you know, I'll tell you, it is a fun thing to get to talk about marriage tonight. Uh, and the reason it's a fun thing to stand up here on this platform and talk about marriage tonight is that 17 hours from now, in fact, 17 and a half hours from now to be specific, uh, there will be a wedding right here on this stage. Some of you know these folks um, right here. Um, if, yeah. If you are new or newer to us, um, these uh, are two folks, J.D. Lasky and Paulina Bartolucci, uh, who are getting married tomorrow. Both are team members, staff members here at Calvary. Uh, J.D. works with our high school ministry and has for many, many years. Uh, and Paulina works with our special abilities ministry. And right here on this stage at 1 p.m. tomorrow, they are getting married. Uh, if you didn't know about that and you know one of these two, here's the coolest thing about their wedding. Everyone is invited um, to this ceremony. And so they're going to do a reception with some close friends and family, but if you want to join us, you can. Uh, for tomorrow's celebration, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be an amazing celebration right here in this room for these two. And it's kind of fun to think about marriage in light of an actual marriage that's about to happen. But because there's something we need to talk about tonight, and there's something we want to think about as we head into not only tomorrow's wedding that we're going to celebrate, some of us here, um, but also to think about the subject of tonight's sermon. Like, I want to ask a question with J.D. and Paulina getting married tomorrow. And here's the question I want to start with tonight. Why do people get married anyway? Like, why do they do it? What's marriage all about? Is marriage just some Bronze Age invention or some invention of the patriarchy to keep women down? Is it some property rights thing that we came up with a long time ago to figure out who gets what? Like, what is marriage? 
Because marriage gets a bad rap today, and marriage is kind of looked down upon. You'll hear phrases like this, well, I love you, and I don't need a piece of paper to prove that. See, tonight I want to talk about marriage. I want to try to answer this question, why do people get married anyway? And if I were to kind of come to this sermon as I was prepping for it, I thought of so many texts I could go to from Ephesians chapter 5 or Colossians chapter 3 or even 1 Peter chapter 3, what Jesus has to say about marriage. But tonight, tonight I'm directing our attention toward a different text in the Bible. See, the text I want to look at tonight is a text very early, one of the most ancient texts of the Bible, the most ancient story about human beings that we have Tonight we're going to look at the story of Adam and the story of Eve, and I want us to see this really clearly, that marriage wasn't invented recently. Marriage wasn't invented by human beings. In fact, I'm going to put it this way to you, that marriage is a product of creation, not of culture. See, culture invented all kinds of things. It invented schools and hospitals. It invented television stations. It invented sports teams. It invented all sorts of things. But there were some things that God created right at the beginning that he wove right into the fabric, into the DNA of human beings. Like you may have opinions about marriage, but here's what I need you to know. Billions of people throughout human history have gotten married on every continent and every language of every race and every different type of people. Marriage is a human universal. And the reason for that is because marriage is a product of creation, not simply of each individual culture. See, tonight we're going to look at the story of Adam and Eve, and I'm sure, uh, even if you didn't grow up in church, and I don't assume all of you did, we're going to look at Adam and Eve, and I suspect you'll know the story, but I want us to think about this story in light of the fact that Adam and Eve is really the first wedding, the first marriage. It happens right at the beginning of creation, and here's what I want us to think about tonight. That Adam and Eve's marriage is both a description of one marriage, like it tells us about their marriage, it tells us about their wedding, and it is a prescription for all marriages. So not only is it describing Adam and Eve's marriage, but it's setting a pattern for all marriages that will follow, including yours someday. If you're going to get married today, or today, no, hopefully not today, but that'd be wild. Um, If you're going to get, amen. If you're going to get married someday, I want you to think deeply about this first marriage. I want you to think deeply about how God created marriage to be. Like tomorrow night when we're on this platform celebrating J.D. and Paulina getting married, I want us to think deeply about the fact that this marriage that's going to happen on June 11, 2021, actually goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. And we'll see their marriage described, and then we'll see what is prescribed. In other words, what is commanded, given to us as a pattern for us as we go forward and and pursue marriage ourselves. So again, Genesis chapter 2, we're going to begin in verse 5. Genesis 1, if you haven't read your Bible before, is this epic poem about how God creates the world uh, and all of the things he creates, and then it zooms in on chapter 2 to these first human beings. It starts this way. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and take care of it. So so here's the observation. This first human being is created, and what happens with this first human being, this man who was created out of the dust, God puts him in the Garden of Eden. He puts them in this special place, but I need to be really clear on this. Eden is not a place for him to lay around on a hammock and just kind of kick it and enjoy paradise. That is not what Adam is told to do. You'll actually see right here in the text, the Lord God put the man in the garden to do what? To work it and to take care of it. Let me put it to you this way this evening, that Adam had work to do and things to take care of. Adam had work to do and he had things to take care of. And to the men in this room, to the men listening online right now, 
I want to speak to you and help you understand that part of the core of what it means to be a man is to decide to be a man who works at things, who takes care of things. That part of what it means to be a man, according to the Bible, according to the pattern that Adam gives us here in the scripture, is that work is not something you try to avoid or minimize in your life, but rather work is something essential to what it means to be a man. And I know too many young men that their whole goal in life is minimize work and maximize play. Try to avoid work, call out sick, stay home, play video games, drink beer, just kind of like avoid responsibility, not really carry anything heavy in their life. And it's not that I'm against those things. It's not that I'm anti you hanging out. It's just that if you have built your entire life around avoiding work and trying to do as little as possible and take on as little responsibility in your life as possible, you will never flourish as the man that God created you to be. Men, work is core to what it means for you to be a man for you to step into the calling God has for you. Adam had work to do, and he had something to take care of. Men, I want you to step into work, embrace work. Don't run from it, run toward it. That burden that you put on your shoulder is what gives your life meaning and purpose and shape and value. It's not that work is the most important thing in your life, but it is something that God wired into men straight from the beginning. And then let me speak to women, um, because tonight here's what I've established, that what we see in Adam and Eve is a pattern for all of us to follow. And if Adam, what we're saying is he had work to do and things to take care of, if his first wedding, this first marriage is built around a man who is working and taking care of things, women, let me say this to you tonight. As you think about who you're gonna marry, as you date men, as you just even go on dates with men, as you talk to men, as you just kind of go through this world and start to meet people and wonder who you might marry, can I just say this to you tonight? Women, do not marry a man who will not work and take care of things. Do not marry that kind of man. Don't be with that kind of man. Now, now listen, I'm not saying don't marry a man who doesn't have his perfect career, who's not super rich. I'm not talking about you can only marry someone if they know exactly what they're gonna do with their life and their whole career is on track. I don't mean that at all. I just mean do not find yourself in a relationship with a man who is not willing to value work because believe me, there's going to come a time in your life where you need that man to work to serve you, to help you, to help you with your life and your home and your families and your babies and the things going on in your community. Women, I want you to seek after men who value work. I want you to seek after men who understand the deep value of work in this world. And the lazy man who doesn't really want to engage, doesn't want to work, doesn't want to carry any responsibility on his shoulders, but just wants freedom so he doesn't have to do anything, is not worth your time, It's not worth your energy, and he's not worth calling your husband someday. Women, Seek out the type of man who's willing to step into the shoes that Adam gave him. And that's the shoes of work and taking responsibility for things. It goes on this way in verse 16. It says, the Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will most certainly die. And so we're not gonna get into Genesis three tonight, but if you know the story, um, God gives one command and they mess it up. He gives one command to the man and he messes up, he doesn't walk in obedience, he doesn't do the one thing he's supposed to do, and it wreaks havoc on the world, the universe, and the human race ever since. But we'll, but we'll go on to verse 18 here, because I think this is significant. It says, the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. When you read the scriptures here, I want you to see this phrase, it is not good. The Lord God looks at the human being. He looks at this man standing alone in the Garden of Eden, working at things, laboring at things, taking care of things, and says, you know what, this won't do. This is not good. 
And if you've been reading the Bible since the beginning, in fact, at some point sit down and read Genesis 1 all the way through. Here's what you'll see over and over like this gong being hit. Here's what it says. God saw that it was good. Seven times in the first chapter of Genesis, God sees that it was good. He creates this and it says God saw it was good. He creates this and he saw that it was good. And then Genesis 2. Suddenly, it's like this disruptive, like record scratch, like everything's going along. It's like, like, and suddenly, it's not good. Suddenly, like the whole scene pans out, and there's one thing in all of creation that is not good. And I think this is actually important for us to think about when you're thinking about marriage, when you think about life, when you think about what it means to be single. Can I put it this way to you? It is not good to be alone because you need other people. I'll say that again, it's not good for you to be alone because you need other people. It is not good for you to be alone in this world, to just kind of do life on your own and not have deep relationships and not have people that you bear your soul to and not have people who know you and you know them. That's going to happen in friendship. It's going to happen in your family of origin. It's going to happen in your roommates. It's going to happen in your church. But maybe one of the most beautiful and spectacular ways that is going to happen is in the context of a marriage. Again, that's how it happens for Adam and Eve. This is the prescription, the model, the pattern for all of us. And here's why I'm lingering on this point for a moment. If you hang around church people long enough, it is likely that at some point you will hear a phrase that sounds like this. You might say something like, you know, I really want to be married, or I just kind of feel single, and I feel lonely, and I want to be married. I'm getting into my late 20s. I'm in my 30s. I'm starting to get past the point in life where I thought I'd be married. And you say something like that, and if you hang around church people long enough, they'll say something like this, you don't need a man, all you need is God. Or you'll be told, you don't need a woman, all you need is God. And that's a nice phrase. It sounds nice. Like, I don't need to be married, all I need is God. I don't need people, all I need is God. It's a nice phrase. It's a cute phrase. But according to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18, It is an unbiblical phrase. Can I encourage you to cast this phrase out of your vocabulary? To stop saying things like this to people? To stop saying that you don't need anyone else, all you need is God? Because the Bible says it is not good for you to be alone. In other words, it's saying it's not, God is not all you need. Now listen, that sounds weird, right? But this comes back to the principle I've been saying since the very beginning. That when you take a good thing and make it the best thing, it becomes a bad thing, right? Right? So ultimately, here's what we can say to someone. You do not need to make marriage and romance and dating and marriage the best thing in your life. God is the only thing that is the best thing in your life. But the Bible never says all you need is God, so you don't need to be married. In fact, it says something different. It tells you that it is not good for you to be alone. So what's the point? What's the conclusion of all this? It's very simple. That your desire for marriage is not an indication of your lack of faith. I just want to free someone up tonight who just really wants to be married, really wants to be married and have babies and have a family and build that life for yourself. That isn't an indication that you don't love Jesus. It isn't an indication that you don't trust him. And some of you have been just walking under this false guilt where you want to get married and people kind of laugh you off or say that you're desperate or say that you're thinking too much about the things of this world and not about God. But right here at the beginning of the story, God is going to create Eve. He's going to create the woman because he looks at the first human being And goes, it is not good for man to be alone. It's not good. See, here's how it contrasts. There's three different visions of marriage that you can find out there in the world. Three different visions. The first is this. The first is kind of the traditional cultures. And traditional cultures are going to put it this way. Traditional cultures overvalue marriage and family. 
When I say traditional cultures, I mean like 100 years ago in our nation. In certain nations all over the world where family and babies and a lineage and a genealogy are what matter most. That there's certain cultures, traditional cultures, that are going to say this, that if you're not married, you're not enough. You're incomplete. The ultimate thing in life is getting married. So that's traditional cultures. But then you've got modern cultures. You've got modern cultures, especially even in the West, that are going to say this. Like, like modern Western Christians are going to say this, that we overvalue individualism and personal freedom. Like, do you want to know the reason that people don't want to get married? The reason people don't want to get married is they don't want to limit their options. They don't want to limit their freedom. The idea of bonding yourself to another person means you're limiting your options because it does. And in a culture that is obsessed with individualism, that's obsessed with personal autonomy and personal freedom, Marriage seems like it's cramping your style. See, there's three visions of marriage. There's sort of a traditional view that so many held that got this kind of toxic view that if you're not married, you're not enough. There's a toxic culture that every one of us lives in that overvalues individualism and personal freedom. But here's what Christianity does. Christianity values marriage as a good but not ultimate institution. See, is it okay for you to desire marriage? Yes. Is it a problem if you desire marriage more than you desire God? Absolutely. See, this is what Christian faith does. We're going to value marriage as a good institution, worth pursuing, worth desiring, worth wanting. But it is not the ultimate thing in this life. And it is not the ultimate thing in this world. Verse 18 is going to go on this way in the back half. Um, God is about to create Eve, this woman, for this man. And here's what he says. He says, I will make a helper suitable for him. Now let's talk about this uh, verse here for a second. Um, Every time I preach through Genesis chapter 2, every time I try to present this text, we always run across this word right here, helper. And we run across this word helper in reference to women. And for some of you, your blood just kind of starts boiling immediately. For some of you, there's this tension in this room like helper. Like I'm not a helper. I'm something. There's just kind of this like anger toward this. And here's what I would submit to you. I think one of the things you need to do when you see something in the Bible that makes you angry is slow down and try to understand why it's there rather than immediately impose your cultural grid upon it. Because here's what I want to show you. The word helper here is a word in English. And it's a word that translates a different word from the Hebrew language. I'll show it to you this way. In English, the word is helper. In Hebrew, the word is azer. This is an important word for us tonight. The word is azer. It says that the first woman, this first woman was created to be a helper, an azer for the first man. Now again, you might just think that means like the, the woman is like a little minion, a little slave, a little like servant to help out the man. But that's not actually what the word azer means in Hebrew. Uh, let me read to you a definition from John Walton. He says this, the word helper, that's azer, It is a common enough description of someone who comes to the aid or provides a service for someone. It carries, listen to this, no implication regarding the relationship or relative status of the individuals involved. In fact, the noun form of this verb in this verse is used elsewhere, refers almost exclusively to God as the one who helps his people. Let me put it to you this way. The word azer is in fact used of the woman in this chapter. The woman is called an azer. She is called a helper. But you know who else is called an azer or a helper in the Bible? Is God himself over and over again. Psalm chapter 33, verse 20 is going to tell us this. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help, our azer, and our shield. Let me show you Psalm chapter 121. This is a pretty famous verse. I lift my eyes to the mountain. Where does my help, my azer, come from? 
My help, my azer comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and of earth. And the final verse we're going to look at here uh, is in Psalm 115. It says, it says it this way. I will put it up on the screen here. Psalm 115, it says, All you Israelites, trust in the Lord. He is their azer and shield. House of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their azer and shield. You who fear him, trust in the Lord. He is their azer and their shield. So listen to me. It is unquestionably the case that the second chapter of Genesis calls the woman the helper, the azer. But the only way you can come to the conclusion that that makes women less than or subservient or somehow less valuable than men, the only way you can come to that conclusion is if you believe God is described in the Bible as less than men. And there's no one out there who thinks God is less valuable than men. All right? The word azer is not some kind of dig. It's not some kind of insult. It's actually a verb, it's a word, it's an idea that means you're helping, you're the one who rescues and redeems, you're this unexpected help that comes and helps the man do the thing he could not do on his own. So so the Bible uses the word azer not to push women down, but to lift women up, to insist that women are this gift of grace to humanity. So what's it saying here? That the first woman, this woman named Eve, who we're about to discover her name, the first woman was created as a helper an azer for the first man. So what does that mean for marriage? Uh, Like in the context of marriage, what does that mean for the woman? Here's what it means for the women. Um, Women, I need you to understand this, that when it comes to marriage, men cannot complete their work without the help of women. Men cannot complete their work without the help of women. Remember, Adam is put into the garden. He's not there to lounge. He's not there to hang around. He has work to do and he has things to take care of. That's why Adam is put in the garden. And in fact, what we we were going to see in just a little bit is he's supposed to name every animal on earth. That's what he's supposed to do. Name every animal on earth. He has this massive task, this massive assignment, this thing that's too big for him to care for this garden. And so what does God do? God brings the woman in. Because men cannot complete their work without the help of women. Like, man, I want you to understand that you cannot accomplish the thing that God has for you unless you value others in your life. And if God has marriage for you, your wife is not there to just be your servant. It's not just to be there someone else. It is the person who helps you fully flourish as the human that God has for you. But I want you to understand the opposite is also true. That the women cannot complete here, I should say their work, without the help of men. Like in other words, the marriage relationship is meant to be this relationship that helps one another flourish and grow into the man or the woman that God created you to be. Like, let me just put it this way to you tonight. If you get into marriage with the idea that you're supposed to find fulfillment for yourself, you will never have a happy marriage. Happy marriages are found in you stepping into a relationship with another person where you are trying to help them flourish. And everything in our culture tells you the opposite. Everything in media and in movies and in TV shows says you get into marriage because it'll satisfy you and satisfy the deepest desires of your heart. And I'm here to tell you the opposite is true. When you get into a marriage with the desire, with the impulse to make the other person flourish, that is how marriages work. That is what marriage is for. Listen, marriage exists to help both men and women fulfill their God-given assignment in this world. That's why you get marriage, married. Not for your sake, not for your fulfillment, not for your happiness, but to serve another person, to see them for who they are, and declare that you want them to help you, and you want that you to help them fulfill their God-given assignment in this world. 
It goes on this way in verse 19. It says, Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all of the wild animals and the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man named each living creature, that was his name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the sky, and all of the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper, again, here's that word azer for the second and final time in this text, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord caused the man to go into a deep sleep. First thing Adam does after naming the animals, he's tired, he goes to sleep, takes a nap. And while he was sleeping, he took out one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. So here's what happens. Adam is naming all of the animals. And then what does it say? No suitable helper, no suitable azer is found. In other words, all of the created order does not contain someone who can help Adam become the man that God wants him to be. There is nothing and no one else in all of creation that can do it. So God has to create something brand new, something spectacular, something wonderful, something that is like the man but different than the man. And so ultimately, he creates a woman. He creates Eve. He creates this woman, then in just a moment, we're going to recognize as the first woman as Eve. And I want you to know this, that Eve has a man to help and a mission to complete. Like in other words, she is given a man to help. Like it says here in the text that God brings her to the man. In other words, he creates Eve and he's like, this fellow right here, help him out because he's hopeless. And she comes there and she has a man to help and a mission to complete. And what's her mission? Help make this man all that God created him to be, which is what I said the mission of marriage is. It's to help that other person become more like Jesus. It's to help sanctify them and make them more holy. This is the purpose of marriage, not my own self-fulfillment. Adam wasn't created for Adam. Eve wasn't created for Eve. They were created to help one another. And so here's what Eve is created for. Eve is created to be a helper, an azer for Adam. He has a, she has a man to help and a mission to complete. Ladies, I want you to understand the awesome power of influence you will have someday. Should you choose to get married, should you step into that relationship, God has created you with this epic ability to shape and mold and influence this person in your life. Your goal is not to just get into a marriage and try to be happy yourself. Your goal is to help make this man more like Jesus. And then men, let me put it this way to you. Men, do not marry a woman who will not be your azer, your helper, the person who comes alongside you and helps you make more like Jesus. An azer, a helper, someone who's gonna respect you and honor you and listen to you and care about you. Don't step into a type of marriage where there's not a woman who wants to see God's best for you in your life. It doesn't matter how attractive she is, how funny she is, how wonderful she is in every other way. If she's not willing to step into your life and help make you more like Jesus, help make you more like the man God created you to be, then there's absolutely no reason for you to step in to a marriage with her. Uh, again, this first marriage is gonna give us a description of Adam and Eve, but it's also gonna give us a prescription of what kind of marriages we should be seeking after. And, and again, as we read Genesis chapter two, this room is overwhelmingly single. Like again, I don't know who's listening online, but in this room, it is just like single town, crazy town, right? Single, ready to make it. That's this room, right? And, and here's what I hope. I hope that you are looking for the type of people who want to step into a biblical kind of marriage, not just the type of people who want to get married so they can have their happily ever after story, or not just the type of people who want to step into marriage so that they can fulfill some satisfaction in their own heart. 
that you would step into the types of marriages where you will help one another become more like Jesus and become the man or the woman that God created you to be. It goes on this way in verse 23. The man said this. This is the first words a human being has ever spoken in the history of the world. Here's what he says. This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman for she was taken out of man. This is the first recorded words in human history, the first thing we see the man ever saying. And you know what he immediately spouts off with? He immediately spouts off with a love poem, with a song. Now, this might not sound super romantic to you. I imagine in the original Hebrew, like it's a little more flowery and lovely. But this is what he says. He says, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Like, we say things like that, don't we? We're just kind of looking at someone, you're like, you're mine, I'm yours, I'm with you forever. We're in this. This is what he's saying. You're bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. He's immediately recognizing that they are created with this equal kind of dignity and value and worth, but they're not identical. Like men and women are not identical, and this is what's happening here in this marriage. It's this beautiful, beautiful moment of romance where he's singing over, he's creating poetry over his new wife. And again, I think this aspect of romance is important for us to linger on for a moment here. Um, Because I've been talking about helping make one another more like Jesus. I've been talking about making each other, helping one another become the human being, the man or the woman that God made you to be. But I don't want you for a second to think that the biblical vision of marriage doesn't involve romance. There is a deep presence of romance even here in this story. I know you might not be able to see it, but this is what's emerging from the story. Adam and Eve have this romance going on, these deep-seated feelings for one another. And again, I just want to kind of contrast this with how the world functions. I want to give you, again, three visions of marriage. Here's the first one. Traditional cultures are going to see romance as unnecessary for marriage. So you think of many of these cultures where what happens is there's an arranged marriage or somehow marriage is all about family, it's all about babies, it's all about inheritance, it's all about that. And listen, is there value in babies and inheritance and family and lineage? Absolutely. But in some cultures, it's said that romance is not important at all. All that matters is that you marry and have children. And that is not the biblical vision of marriage. But then modern culture is going to say something different. Modern culture is going to see romance as sufficient for marriage. Like in other words, if you feel things for her or if you feel things for him, then that makes you ready to get married to them. And I need you to understand that Christian faith is going to reject both of these. It's going to say romance isn't unnecessary, but it's also not sufficient. Here's what Christian faith says. Christianity sees romance as a necessary, but not sufficient part of marriage. Necessary. Like it is necessary that you feel things for him. That you feel things for her. That there's this deep desire for you to be around them. This romance, what you feel deeply matters. But it's not sufficient for marriage. Like, in other words, it won't sustain a marriage. It won't keep you married for 50 years. And I don't know about you, but I'm not interested in getting into a marriage that's going to break up over a few years. I want a marriage that's going to sustain until I'm old and gray and we're grandparents sitting on our front porch sipping lemonade and iced tea. Like, that's the kind of marriage I want. And how do you have that kind of marriage? Like, emotion and romance is not going to carry that. So it's necessary, but it's not sufficient. What's sufficient is this deep sense that you are someone God has created in his image, and I'm going to help you make, I'm going to help God, I'm going to be your helper, making you more into the image of Christ. It goes on this way in verse 24. It says, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. So here's what I hope you've noticed throughout the story. 
Hope you notice that God created Adam and God has created Eve, and both of them are equal. It says actually in Genesis 1, 27, 28, that man and woman, male and female, are created in the image of God. They're created completely equal. Not one subservient to another. Helper doesn't mean subservient. In fact, it's an exalted phrase in the Bible. So you've got these two individuals created for one another, and yet they're not identical. Like I need you to know the claim of the Bible is not that men and women are just kind of interchangeable. They're not identical. They're equal. They're completely equal in dignity and value and worth. But they're not identical. And you'll see a few threads that start to run throughout this passage. You'll see that Adam was created first. And in the ancient culture, that means something. To us, that doesn't mean anything. But in the ancient culture, the first created has a sense of authority, a sense of leadership in the family, a sense of responsibility and weight that is put on their shoulders. In fact, I think even in some of your families, if you are a firstborn, your parents expect more of you. They want more of you. They demand more of you. This is the truth in the scriptures. Adam is created first. Later on, it says Adam is naming all the animals, and he names Eve. And again, in our culture, naming someone doesn't really carry with it a lot of meaning or weight or authority. But in the ancient culture this was written in, that meant a great deal. To name someone was to show some sort of authority or responsibility for them. It's similar to how I named my two babies, right? In naming them, it showed that I had the power, the authority, but also the responsibility to love them and serve them. And then here in this verse, you're going to see another thread here. It doesn't say that's why men and women leave their families, right? It says this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. It's the image of, I grew up under the household of Nancy and Vern Howard, but when I married my wife, what I did is I stepped out under that household, I stepped into her household, and we formed a new household. So what am I trying to communicate here? These threads are starting to build a picture for us that we're going to see throughout the entirety of the Bible. And it's something that you need to understand when you read the scriptures, when you read what the Bible has to say about marriage, you're going to stumble over and over and over on the sentence I'm about to say. And men, I want you to hear this clearly, that husbands are called to be servant leaders in the marriage relationship. You're going to see that over and over and over again in the Bible. There's a special weight and responsibility that is put on the shoulders of men. Now, again, I say that sentence, and I think there's some of you who just cringe at that. Your blood boils, you get angry, because when you hear leadership, you didn't hear the word servant leader, you heard the word tyrant, boss, angry, mean, tyrant who bosses someone around. And listen, if your image, men, of marriage is that I'm going to get married and I'm going to be the boss who tells her what to do and she's going to do what I want to do because I'm the head of this home, I want to suggest that that doesn't come from the Bible, that comes from somewhere else. All right, listen, men, I need you to understand that if you are going to be a servant leader, your model for that isn't some kind of picture of some strong man marriage. Your picture for what it means to be a servant leader in your marriage is Jesus. Jesus who laid down his life for his bride, Jesus who served, Jesus who loved, Jesus who gave of himself, Jesus who did not use his power to lord it over us, but rather sacrificed his life, initiated his love, did everything he can for our flourishing. So listen, I'm just going to unapologetically teach what the Bible says, that husbands are called to be servant leaders in their marriage, but don't you miss me for a second. There is an abusive, manipulative, mean, condescending kind of leadership that is not what we're talking about at all. I want to show you what kind of leadership I'm talking about tonight. So when my wife and I got married, actually on this stage, eight years ago, um, we decided to do something during our marriage ceremony. And um, the thing we decided to do was, was what we thought would be a picture for us of what servant leadership was supposed to look like in the context of our marriage. 
And it wasn't me looking strong, and it wasn't me looking like I'm the boss, and you listen to me, and you do what I want all the time. We decided that there was a picture we wanted to show everyone watching, but a picture we wanted to be reminded of. And here's the picture right here. It's the picture of washing feet. What Jesus did in John chapter 13, where he goes to his disciples, and the might of his authority is on display. And so instead, he kneels down and begins to wash his disciples' feet. Men, that's servant leadership. When I said that you are called to be a servant leader in your family, this is what I'm talking about. My wife and I printed this out on a canvas. It sits in our hallway. Every morning when I walk out of my room in the hallway, that's the first image I see. And when I go to bed, that is the last image I see because that's the kind of husband I want to be. That's the kind of husband Jesus calls men to be. Ladies, that's the kind of husband you want to marry. Not that he's perfect, not that I'm perfect, not that there's anyone perfect. But ladies, I want you to marry the type of man who is willing to serve you, to lead in such a way that he lays down his preferences, his rights, his desires, his his angle on how he wants things to go and serves you. It it means an initiating kind of love where I want to be the first in my marriage to say, hey, things aren't so good. How can I make them better? It's a sacrificing kind of love where if my wife wants to go one place for dinner and I want to go another place for dinner, I'm always going to try to sacrifice my preferences for her. It's a protecting kind of love that says even if my wife is a black belt in karate and someone breaks into our home, I'm never going to be like, honey, you take care of it tonight, right? Like, I'm never going to do that. I'm always going to be there. And even if she's way stronger than me, I'd better be knocked out on the floor before anyone gets to my wife and babies. It is a protecting, initiating, providing kind of love. Listen, I'm not convinced anywhere in the Bible it says that men are supposed to go to work and ladies are supposed to stay home. It's just not in the Bible. But I am convinced that men should have a burden that I want to provide for my bride just like Jesus provided for us. It is providing, protecting, initiating, sacrificing, loving, giving everything I can for my wife. That is the kind of leadership, men, that you are called to. And women, this is the exact kind of man you want to be looking for. Ask yourself this question if you're in a relationship right now, women. I want you to think on this tonight. Is this the type of husband he'll be? Is this the type of servant leader he'll be? Is this the type of person? I don't mean perfectly. I'm not perfect. But this is what I'm aiming for. Is he aiming for this? And men, I want to ask you this question. When you think about your marriage someday, when you think about your wife someday, when you think about what your household's going to be like, is this the image you have? Because this is the image that Jesus calls us to. We're supposed to love our wives like Christ loved the church. And that means to serve, to sacrifice, and ultimately to wash feet. Here's the final verse we're going to look at, verse 25. It says Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Genesis chapter one is God creating the whole world and Genesis chapter two zooms in on the first few human beings in the Garden of Eden. The passage goes and we see everything that we just read now and it ends with two naked human beings hanging out in a paradise and they feel no shame. This is this beautiful, wonderful moment here. And I want you to know, it's not just like they're naked hanging out. Like this is a euphemism the Bible uses to talk about sex. Like like the Bible's gonna say things like they were naked and they felt no shame. That means they're having sex. The Bible is gonna talk about things like they knew one another. And that's not like, hey, I know her. It's like they knew one another, right? And you may think that makes the Bible so weird, but we say things like that, right? If I said like, yeah, him and her, they went and slept together, you might, you're not going to go like, what kind of pillows did they have, right? It's not what we're asking. So we use euphemisms for sex too. In fact, almost no one ever says sex. So I got up here on stage and say sex, and people are like, oh, you know, like we do this. This is what the Bible does too. They were naked. They felt no shame. Like, I want you to know we've talked about serving one another and loving one another and helping one another, and we talked about romance, but I want you to know right at the center of a marriage relationship is sex, 
And sex is a good thing. Sex is a wonderful thing. Sex is a blessing. Right here in the first marriage, you see sex is right at the core of it. Uh, again, there's this kind of like traditional cultures are going to try to say like sex isn't really that important. It's really just about family. And sex is really only important for having babies. And then there's our modern culture that says sex is the only thing that matters at all. And Christian faith is just going to say something entirely different. Here's what Christian faith is going to say about sex. Three things. Sex is a good thing. Like it is not a dirty, bad thing for us to talk about here in church. If you get squeamish that I talk about it here in church, it's not because of the Bible. It's because what culture is forced upon you. Sex is a good thing. We try just, when we talk about just like being positive about sex, it is a good thing. It's a gift that God gave to us. Again, I keep repeating this. God could have had us have babies and reproduce in any other way, but he's like, you're going to love this. It's a good thing. It's a gift. And it's God's idea. It's God's idea. It was like Adam and Eve were in the garden, and he's like, what are you doing? It didn't happen. It's a good thing. God looks at it, and he's celebrating it because it was his idea. And it was a gift for married couples to enjoy. It's something right at the center. It's not that all of marriage is sex. Sometimes like 16-year-old boys are going to get married and that's all we're going to do. And then they got married and realized that's not all you're going to do. Like a ton of marriage is friendship and sitting around and eating Cheetos, watching terrible reruns of some show and just hanging out and being friends. But right at the core of a marriage relationship is sex. It is this beautiful, good, wonderful thing. It says they were naked and unashamed. They've given the entirety of themselves to the other. Tim Keller puts it this way. It says, sex is God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. You must not use sex to say anything less. Listen, some people have the, think the Bible has a low view of sex. I think you're totally wrong. I think the Bible has the highest view of sex you could possibly have. It says it is a good gift of God to be shared in the midst of a marriage. It is a way to say, I belong to you completely, even my own body. I belong to you and you belong to me. We are completely, exclusively, permanently together. You see, it's the same um, text here where it talks about a father, uh, leaving your father and mother and being united with your wife, being naked and having no shame. That in Ephesians chapter five, I think the most epic New Testament text on um, weddings and on marriage, we had it read over us at our own wedding. It says this, Ephesians chapter five, it says, for this reason, this is the apostle Paul quoting the book of Genesis. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Then he says this, this is a profound mystery but I am talking about Christ and the church. I'm talking about Christ and the church. And I want you to recognize as we wrap up this sermon on, on marriage, that Paul describes marriage as this, a profound mystery, which brings us back to our question we asked at the very beginning. Why do people get married anyway? Like, why do people get married? This is the mystery that we're talking about tonight. Why do people choose to do this? Everything I just talked about tonight of sex and romance and love and helping one another become all that God created you to be, why do people get married anyway? And I want to close by contrasting two things. Um, I do a lot of weddings as a pastor. Uh, and a lot of times in more recent years, people have really enjoyed writing their own vows. And sometimes, you know, when people write their own vows, they're like beautiful and heartfelt and amazing. And sometimes they try to fill them with jokes and you know they always fall flat, right? They, just, they don't work. Some of you have been at weddings, you're like, you should have done the traditional ones, right? This is what happens. But people share their vows and here's what happens sometimes in vows. People go, I love you so much. I love you more than anything. I love you and you're the most greatest, wonderful, amazing person who I love. And listen to me, <laughs> that, that's sweet. It's pretty inarticulate. Um, it's sweet, 
But it's actually not what marriage is all about. Like, like, can I say this to you? Like, at a wedding, the next wedding you're at, here's what I want you to recognize. Here, tomorrow night, when, when JD and Paulina get married, here's what I want you to know. A wedding is not a declaration of present love. A wedding is not declaring, I love you. That is not what a wedding is. Anyone can declare, I love you. That's the easy part. The easy part is being like, I love you, and you love me. A wedding is not a declaration of present love. Listen to this. If you remember nothing else tonight, remember this. A wedding is a promise of future love. That's what a wedding is. A wedding is a promise that I don't just love you now, but I'm going to love you in the future, even when I don't want to love you. I'm going to serve you in the future. I'm going to be your helper, your azer, even when you frustrate me. I'm going to lay down my life to serve you, even when I would rather serve myself. That is what a wedding is. It's not a declaration of present love. It is a promise of future love. So listen to me, just over 3,000 days ago, um, right here on the stage on March 1st of 2013, um, this scene took place. Um, and this week, uh, being a part of JD's wedding, it's just so fun uh, to come back to my own wedding. And you've seen my wife in some of these videos, and uh, this was us getting married right here in this room on, uh, like I said, March 1st of 2013. And on that day, we got up here and we made promises to one another. And it wasn't a declaration of our present love, it was a promise of future love. And I had no idea how much I would need that promise. I had no idea how much I would need that promise. You see, I heard someone say once, they were talking about marriage, and they were kind of of talking about it negatively, and they said something like this. They're like, I don't need a piece of paper to love you. And here's what she said. Oh, my gosh, I'll never forget this. She said, what I want to do is wake up every morning, roll over, look at the guy I'm with, and decide that day that I want to be with him. And I thought, man, that's beautiful. That's so cool, like to wake up every morning and look at the person and not just be bound by something, but decide that I want to be with them. Can I tell you the only problem with that? In the last eight years, there are mornings I've woken up not wanting to be with this person. And I know that might not be something you expect a pastor to say, but can I tell you, maybe more mornings, that woman has woken up not wanting to be with that guy. There have been moments we have not liked each other. There have been moments we have frustrated each other. There have been moments we have looked at each other and gone, you are so difficult There have been moments of difficulty and tension and misunderstanding. There have been moments where it's like, who are you and what did you do with the person I married? Marriage is difficult. Marriage is hard. And so if your whole premise is I just want to wake up every morning and decide who I'm going to be with, some mornings you're going to wake up and be mad at the person you're with, not even because they did anything, but because they did something wrong in in your dreams. Like you're going to wake up with that. And here's what I want you to know. These two people got married 3,000 days ago. And they have not woken up every single morning perfect. We've not woken up every single morning just with this lovey-dovey feeling in our heart. But we did wake up every morning, and when we get out of bed, the first thing we say even before we get into the hallway, we have our vows on our walls. And our vows are a promise. Not a declaration of present love, but a promise of future love that these two young kids made on this stage 3,000 days ago, eight years ago, March 1st of 2013. It was a declaration that we were going to love each other even if we frustrated each other even if we didn't like the other person that day and just didn't like what they were doing and we were all kinds of mad and angry and twisted up and frustrated and unforgiving in our hearts. That's what marriage is all about. Because can I tell you what's so cool? There have been mornings I've woken up kind of mad at this woman and she's been kind of mad at me. But can I tell you what's really cool about being married? You just kind of plant the flag in the ground and you go, well, we're not gonna break up so we might as well work through it. And we do. And then we move on to like an awesome, wonderful marriage that's filled with fun and laughter and travel and babies and life and family and the amazing things God has for us. So if I lived in such a way where I said, well, I'm not going to be with you unless I want to be with you today, I would never have the life we've built together. 
This is what marriage is. Marriage is not you just being with someone you want to be with because you feel like it that day. It is a covenant, a promise that you make to another person that no matter what you do, I'm in with you. And this is why marriage is a great mystery. Listen to me, Paul describes it as a mystery. I'll say it this way. The profound mystery of marriage is that it displays the faithful love of God to the world. This is what marriage is. You want to know God created marriage? He created marriage to be a parable, a mini drama, a picture to a watching world of what it means for God to love us no matter what we do, no matter where we go. You want to know what marriage is? Marriage is being in with the other person in such a way that displays to the world the faithfulness of God and the love of Christ and the sacrifice of his son Jesus on the cross. That's what marriage is. I want to invite you toward it to celebrate marriage, to think about marriage, to desire marriage, to head toward marriage. And listen, maybe not everyone in this room gets married, but I want you to lift it up and celebrate it as a display of the faithful love of God to the world. So here's what we're gonna do. Our band's gonna make their way out right now. Um, And we're gonna go into a time of singing about that faithful love of Christ, the love that God has for us, this amazing love that God shows to us through Christ that we show to one another in the context of marriage. Uh, But but here's just what I'm gonna invite you to do across this room. And even if you're listening online, would you just join me in prayer right now? Would you just bow your your heads and close your eyes? Um, I wasn't planning on doing this, but... um, I think maybe I should tonight. Uh, I want to ask this question. I, I, I sense that there are some people in this room um, who might be uneasy about marriage. Maybe your parents divorced. Maybe marriage just hasn't been a positive thing in your life. Or maybe you want to get married. You're just not sure if you ever will. So there's some anxiety around marriage. Maybe there's anxiety around getting married and commitment. And that just kind of freaks you out. Or, or maybe you've just kind of been convinced your whole life that wanting to be married is a bad thing. Just again, with every eye closed and head bowed in this room, can I just ask this question? Um, tonight I want to pray for you if you're feeling some kind of anxiety or worry or stress or fear around marriage, whether it be recent, like something soon for you or something far off in the future. If that's you tonight and you would say, you know what, there's a little bit of anxiety, there's a little bit of fear, there's a little bit of worry, there's a little bit of uncertainty about what marriage looks like in my life, would you just slip your hand up in the air so I can pray for you? If that's you, all across this room, there's no shame here, no embarrassment here, there's all sorts of reasons your hand might be up in the air right now. Listen, to all of you who are raising your hand right now, let me pray for you. Let me believe for you. Um, God, I thank you for marriage. I thank you for the opportunity to think about that first marriage between Adam and Eve. I pray for those who raise their hands tonight, for those who identify some kind of anxiety or fear or worry or shame or anything else around marriage. God, I just pray your Holy Spirit would minister to their hearts tonight. Would you free them from any lies they've believed? Would you free them from any shame they've been put under? Would you free them from any fear that they're living with inside of them? God, would you just free them? The word says where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. May that be the case in this room tonight. Free us, God. Not so that we can exalt marriage as our highest ideal, so that we can exalt the love of Christ as our highest ideal. May that be true of the men and women in this room. I pray over the next decade here that there would be hundreds, hundreds, hundreds of marriages where people would honor you and love you and serve you. And then for the people who never do get married, God, I pray that they would know that marriage is only a picture of the great love of Christ. And may all of us, married, unmarried, never married, never will be married. May we rest in that love of Christ tonight. We pray it in the crucified name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen.